Well, I, I consider it a great privilege to be able to open up the word of God with you all tonight. Um, Ecclesiastes has been a blessing so far. Amen. Um, as we learn from Solomon, as he looks back at life and asks, what is the meaning when you take out God? And in light of him doing that and in light of his results, uh, I've been thinking about this often. I'm very, very thankful. Very, very thankful for God. I'm very, very thankful for the gospel. I'm very, very thankful for Christ because in Christ, we have meaning. Amen? In God, in the gospel, we have meaning. So the plan for tonight is to finish up uh, chapter one, and uh, I trust it will be a benefit to your hearts. Uh, but before opening up to Ecclesiastes, uh, I want to talk to you about something. I want to give you sort of a, a long and I believe necessary introduction to our message. I want to consider the pursuit of wisdom without God. I want to talk to you about that issue, the pursuit of wisdom without God. And just so we're on the same page, when I say wisdom, I'm talking about the accumulated philosophic or scientific learning. I'm talking about knowledge. Knowledge is a good synonym. Sophistication, understanding, foresight, insight, common sense, whatever you want to call it. Wisdom or knowledge. The pursuit of it without God. Wisdom is held in a high regard in our day and age. I think a lot of you know that. It's highly esteemed in our day and age. Wisdom is cherished in our society, this western side of the world, as an indispensable virtue to live a successful life. Again, I think you know this. Wisdom is what so many people go to school for, right? For knowledge. Wisdom is the reason so many people, so many people want to learn at a post-secondary education. Wisdom is the reason, uh, wisdom is the reason people, uh, they want to leave this as their legacy in life. Um, those that are wise often get the most attention. Those that are wise are often exalted in our day and age. Those that are wise are, are the ones that are to be modeled after. Those that are wise, according to this age, are the ones who are ruling this age. So many people crave after wisdom, after knowledge. I think it's safe to say if we were to look at our world, and particularly look at America, I think it would be safe to say that we love wisdom. We love wisdom. And our love for wisdom, or maybe more accurate, the love of wisdom, is something that has a long, long history. And what I mean by that is philosophy, just so you guys know, Philo and Sophia, two Greek words which make up the word philosophy, a love of wisdom. A love of wisdom was something that our Western world adopted from the ancient Greeks. They adopted it from the ancient Greeks. It's been around for a long time, the love of wisdom. And what's most interesting about the ancient Greeks and their love for wisdom is that it all was birthed out of a moving away from God. It was birthed out of a moving away from God. Every aspect of Greek civilization, I'm reading from one author, science, philosophy, art, literature, politics, historical writing showed a growing reliance on human reason and a diminishing dependency on the gods. 
He continues. He says, through the use of rational reflection, early philosophers attempted to construct a worldview that set aside religion and supernatural explanation of the phenomena. Even through religious thought and practices, even though religion thought and practices were retained, man came to view himself as a creature capable of rational thought able to perceive both the abstract and concrete facets of his world in such a way that demanded an accounting which religion could not provide. While civic religion still continued during this ancient Greek time, it did not dominate all aspects of man's life, close quote. It was this type of mentality that birthed the love of wisdom, philosophy. Men wanting to do away with God Men wanting to construct a worldview that was, that was devoid of, of the supernatural. Men wanting to lift their minds to the place of God. This is how the love of wisdom all started. This is how philosophy started. It makes sense why our Western civilization has adopted this, right? Because an accurate indictment on us is that we have moved away from God as well. Again, in this introduction, I want to ask a question. What is wisdom without God? What is knowledge? What is discernment of truth? What is understanding once you remove God from the equation? And in asking such a question, I want to be honest from the get-go. I just want to tell you where I'm going. I want to expose wisdom. I want to expose worldly wisdom, secular wisdom from a big biblical standpoint. This thing that our world loves, this thing that has a long history of being loved, again, dating back to the ancient Greek world, this thing that our society exalts, knowledge, it's not all it's cut out to be. It's not all it's cut out to be. Wisdom was pursued by the ancient Greeks in order to liberate our mind, to give us freedom, to get away from being oppressed by some divine being. But in all reality, I know and I believe that wisdom apart from God only enslaves. It blinds the human mind. It does not liberate. Wisdom was pursued by the ancient Greeks to demonstrate to mankind how capable he was without God. How capable they were to live without a creator but I only think it has shown us how incapable we are. Wisdom was pursued by the ancient Greeks. Again, they wanted to do away with religion. They wanted to do away with God. They wanted to explain the natural world in which God couldn't explain from their understanding. But I only think it's, it's lied. Human wisdom devoid from God. It's lied about the natural world. It's confused the natural world, at least our understanding of it. So again, what is... What is truly worldly wisdom? What is it? Well, go to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Wisdom without God, knowledge without God, the scriptures tells us first and foremost, is satanic. It's satanic. Write this down. We're going to expose worldly wisdom from a biblical standpoint. The first mark of worldly wisdom, it's satanic. And this, of course, makes sense because when you take God out of the equation, right, there is Satan. He's called the enemy. He's called the God of this world. He's called the adversary. He's the enemy of God. And so when you take away God, 
there is Satan. And the same is true with wisdom, with worldly knowledge. Just a little background to James. James was writing to a group of individuals that had been persecuted. They had been dispersed because of the persecution. They were wrestling with a lot of things, a lot of sins. In chapter one, uh, James tells us that they were angry at God, blaming God for their sin. Chapter two, they were showing partiality to the rich, neglecting the poor. This was all likely because of their famines that they were dealing with and they wanted to glean from the rich. They were having issues with their tongues, according to chapter three. They were constantly warring against one another, according to chapter four. They were being worldly, James tells them in chapter four. They were planning life and leaving God out of the equation, according to chapter five. They were not responding well, if we were to sum it up, to their oppression and to their hardships in general. They were wrestling with a lot of things. Yet with all the problems going on with the individuals that James was writing to, they were claiming to be wise. In light of how they were living, they were still claiming wisdom, claiming to be sages. And James, in light of such a claim, and in light of the way they were behaving, has some strong words for them. Chapter three, verse 13, look at it. He says, who among you is wise and understanding? This is what they were claiming. Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds and gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it's earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. James says here, you think you're wise? The way you're living proves very, very differently. The way in which you are behaving demonstrates that your wisdom doesn't come from God. You don't have a godly wisdom. Look at verse 15. It doesn't come from above, but it's earthly. It's natural. Some of your versions say unspiritual. Then he tops it off and he says demonic. It's demonic. Worldly wisdom is demonic. The way in which the believers were behaving that James was writing to, they were behaving in such a way that showed that they were getting their wisdom from Satan himself, from the demons who we know Satan is ultimately in control of. This is at the root of wisdom without God, ladies and gentlemen. This is at, at the root of a love of wisdom when you take out God. It's earthly. It's natural. It's demonic. But secondly, wisdom without God, I think James tells us something else. Not only is it satanic, James also tells us that it produces ungodliness. It is satanic, and all it does is produce ungodliness. It produces unrighteousness. Look at verse 17, chapter 3. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle. This is what it produces, wisdom from God. It produces reasonableness. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's unwavering in its faith. It's without hypocrisy. This is, this is godly wisdom, he tells his readers. But you, you don't have this. Look at verse 14 again. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes from above. It comes from below. It's satanic. And in this, we see in verse 14 that worldly wisdom, wisdom from below, wisdom from the demons, wisdom from Satan is directly connected to jealousy. It's directly connected to selfish ambition. 
It's directly connecting to lying against the truth. And there in verse 16, it's connected to disorder, chaotic living, and every evil thing. Worldly wisdom without God is not only satanic, ladies and gentlemen. When you remove God from the equation, that knowledge produces only disobedience to God. Actually, Proverbs 3 tells us this as well. Solomon, and you guys know this verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on what? Your own understanding, your own thinking, your wisdom. In all your ways, acknowledge him, right? And he will make your path straight. But verse 7, listen to this in Proverbs chapter 3. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. And he says, turn away from evil. It's interesting. He says, don't be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord, which we know, and we're going to get to, is the beginning of wisdom. And he says, turn away from evil. And what we learn from that is turning away from evil is directly connected to true wisdom. And false wisdom is directly connected to evil. This is what it is, ladies and gentlemen. This is worldly knowledge at its root. It's satanic. It only produces ungodliness. But a third thing, a third mark, go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Worldly wisdom without God focuses on men. It focuses on men. Again, we, we're trying to expose this for what it really is. It's not worth being loved. It's not worth being pursued. And I want to stay in 1 Corinthians for a little bit because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 3, if you were here this summer, Paul talks a lot about wisdom, right? The church in Corinth were trying to intermix the two, godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. Paul said, you can't do that because they're opposed. And I just want to draw from the well here in the first three chapters because Paul exposes and gives a lot of characteristics of worldly wisdom. In the first, he says, worldly wisdom without God, it focuses on men. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And when I came to you, brethren, then I come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, and him crucified. I, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of the power. So that your faith will not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. As Paul opens up this second chapter to the Corinthians, he, he tells them of his parousia. That is how he came to them. And he said, I didn't come like the typical public speakers would have came in that day and age. Listen, Greek culture's primary form of entertainment in this day and age was eloquent speech. It was eloquent, eloquent speech delivered by gifted communicators. Gifted communicators. And these gifted communicators were so loved. They were coveted in this day and age. Their, their tongues were literally by the people called gold. They were celebrities. They were adored by the crowds for their speaking abilities. Many people saw their abilities to be godlike. Godlike. And this infatuation with these gifted communicators had crept itself into the church. And this was sort of the standard. This was the standard when Paul came to the church in Corinth. They had this type of speech in their mind. They wanted Paul to talk like these other guys talk. And Paul said in chapter 1, he says, look, and when I came to you, brethren, I didn't come to you in this way. I didn't give in to those shenanigans, in other words. But Paul told them, I wouldn't give in to such antics. 
Verse 2, he says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I just wanted, I just wanted to show you Christ. I wasn't trying to entertain you. I wasn't trying to have you focus on me, which is all of what the public speakers wanted in that day and age. Me, me, me. I just wanted you to look at Christ and him crucified. Verse 3, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Again, I didn't speak like these men spoke. I was different. Why? Look at verse 5. So that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men but on the power of God, on the power of God. Paul says, listen, such rhetorical pomp, such rhetorical flash with words rests in the power of men. Ladies and gentlemen, earthly wisdom, when you take out God from knowledge, from truth, it focuses on man's ability. It focuses on man's reputation is what we learn from 1 Corinthians 2. And actually look back at chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 26, Paul says the same thing. He says, for consider your calling, brother. And again, a lot of them were trying to intermix worldly wisdom with godly wisdom. And Paul says you can't do that. And he uses the, own, he uses the Corinthians as an example as to why you can't do that. He says, consider your calling, brother. That, that there were not many of you who were wise, according to the flesh. Not many of you were noble according to the world, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things, the things that are not, verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ, who the world considers to be foolish, who became for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it was written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's quoting from Jeremiah 9, verse 23. And in Jeremiah's day, the people of Judah were apostatizing because the people of Judah were putting their hope in men and men's wisdom. And God said, you can't do that. You can't do that. It focuses on men. And God said, I chose you, Corinthians, not because you were wise according to the world, but because you were foolish. And I chose you so that, so that you would boast only in God. Only in God. Again, wisdom of this world, ladies and gentlemen, it lifts up men to the place of God where they ought not to be. So it's satanic. It only produces ungodliness, unrighteousness, it focuses on men. It seeks to lift men up. Fourthly, wisdom without God is foolishness. And I actually laugh at this one. I laugh at the irony of this scriptural truth that wisdom devoid of God is foolishness because this world often boasts. They often speak of Christians as the ones that are fools, walking with blind faith, but the truth of the matter is just the opposite. Look over to chapter three, verse 19 of 1 Corinthians. Wisdom without God is foolishness as well. Verse 18, he said, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become what? He says, foolish. Foolish so that he may become wise. If you want to be wise in God's eyes, Paul's saying this, become a fool to the world. Become a fool to the world. Why, Paul? Why? Look at verse 19. For the wisdom of this world is what? It's foolishness before God. It's moronic. 
For it is written, he is the one who catches, that is God, the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasoning, the understanding of the wise, that they are useless. The world's reasoning, the world's understanding, according to 1 Corinthians 3, is utterly useless. It is foolishness. Proverbs 26, 12, it reads this. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? Do you see a man that's wise in his own eyes? He says there is more hope for a fool than for this guy. There's more hope for a fool. So there's a sense in which Paul's being nice, right? Because Solomon says, actually, they're, they're not even as smart as a fool. They're less than a fool. <laughs> what makes earthly wisdom foolish? Are, are we really... Are, are we really going to call guys like Albert Einstein foolish? Richard Dawkins, foolish? Bertrand Russell? Charles Dawkins, foolish? Bill Nye, fools? Are, are, we are we really wanting to go there? Why are they fools? I believe the answer is yes. Why, why are they fools? Well, worldly wisdom is foolish, one, because it doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. Look back at verse 20, chapter 3. He says, and again, the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise that they are what? Useless. They don't do anything. They don't accomplish anything. Look over back at chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing as the world looks at Christians and they call us fools. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. God is doing away with the wisdom of this world. And then verse 20, a series of questions in which I love, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Has he not exposed the wisdom of the world? And, and in asking this, Paul is, is, is basically saying, Really, where is the smart guy? Where, where are the smart people really at? What is the, this world in its own wisdom really accomplishing? And the answer is nothing. It's nothing. In all our wisdom, ladies and gentlemen, hear me out. When you take out God, men are still sitting in the same place as they were so very long ago. I quote from a commentator. He says, how much closer to peace is man than he was a century ago or a millennium ago? How much closer are we to eliminating poverty, hunger, ignorance, crime, and immor immorality than we were in Paul's day? How much closer? Our advances in knowledge and technology and communication have not really advanced us. It is from among those who are intelligent and clever that the worst exploiters the worst deceivers, the worst oppressors come. He's saying from the people who claim to be the smartest come the worst people. We are more educated than our forefathers, but we are not more moral. We have more means in helping each other, but we are not less selfish. We have more means of communication, but we do not understand each other any better. <laughs> we have more psychology and education and more crime and more war. We have not changed except in finding more ways to express and excuse our human nature. Through history, human wisdom has never basically changed, he says. 
It's never basically changed and it has never solved the basic problems of man, close quote. Never. Never accomplished anything. And you remember this, right? What did Solomon say last week in our text in verses 3 through 11 of chapter 1 in Ecclesiastes? What's your life? What do you accomplish? What value do you have? You don't change anything. You don't satisfy anyone, right? You don't do anything new, right? You don't, you're never remembered. What are you truly accomplishing? Nothing. Men, wisdom is foolish without God because they don't accomplish anything. Doesn't do anything. But here's the second reason why I'm willing to call guys like Bertrand Russell, guys like Richard Dawkins, fools. A second reason is because not only do they not accomplish anything, they don't accomplish the thing that we most need. Look at verse 20 again of chapter one. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He has. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, and God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. What is Paul saying here? He's saying basically God had to accommodate for the foolishness of the world because they couldn't get to the thing that they needed most, which is God in their own wisdom. Not only could they not change anything, they couldn't change the thing or they couldn't get to the person that they most needed. He says there in verse 21, through its wisdom, they did not come to know God. They did not come to know God. This truth really shatters the significance of worldly wisdom, doesn't it? Worldly wisdom has not, it cannot, it will not deal with man's most pressing issues. It never will. Human wisdom takes men deeper and deeper into their sin rather than liberating them from it. Again, it's foolishness. It's foolish. I gotta show you one more passage. Go over to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. Again, trying to show you that men in their own wisdom are really fools. Paul tells us this as well. Chapter one, verse 18. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And you know what he's doing in the first three chapters, trying to stop everyone's mouth to show him that everyone's a sinner. Verse 19, because that which is known about God, this is how they suppress the truth, is evident within them. For God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. He says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. But this is what I really want you to see. Catch verse 22. He says, he, he says professing to be wise, what? They became fools. They said they were wise, but they really were foolish. We have all the knowledge. We know all things. God says, no, you don't. In Romans chapter 1, we see the marks of a, of a fool, of a person who claims to have wisdom but really are foolish. They deny reality. Did you know that? Guys like Bertrand Russell, guys like Richard Dawkins, they deny reality. reality. Look at verse 18. He says at the end of it, they suppress the truth. 
He says they suppress the truth. In verse 19, because that which is known about God has been evident to them. It's clear. It's right in front of them. How so? Well, in creation, verse 20, they have no excuse. Verse 21, Paul tells us that they, again, reject reality. For, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Again, they reject their own knowledge, what they know. They, they silence their own knowledge. Then look at verse 23, professing to be wise, right? In verse 22, they became fools, and what do they do? They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Listen, when you take out God from wisdom and knowledge, it's foolishness. It is foolishness. They reject what's right in front of their faces. They deny reality. They never accomplish anything. So what do we have so far? Okay, wisdom without God is satanic. Wisdom without God only produces unrighteousness, according to James, right? Wisdom without God exalts men, according to 1 Corinthians 2, according to 1 Corinthians 3. Wisdom without God is foolishness. Fifthly, wisdom without God is enslaving. Go over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Again, we're exposing what wisdom without God really is. It's enslaving. It's enslaving. As Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, there were some issues going on. There were some issues going on, some serious issues. The person and work of Christ was under attack. Gnosticism was the culprit. Gnostics taught that you needed some higher form of knowledge to get to God. You need to get to this higher knowledge to really have a relationship with Christ. The Gnostics basically undermined the sufficiency of Christ. They basically said Christ wasn't enough. And, and Paul, understanding this, understanding the seriousness of such claims, the danger of such claims, he writes to defend this. He writes to protect the church. And over in chapter 1, he has a rich Christological section just laying out who Christ really is. He is sufficient. He says in chapter 1, verse 13, he's rescued you, Colossians, from the domain of darkness. Verse 15 of chapter 1, he's the image of the invisible God. For in him all things were created. Verse 17, he is before all things. This is who he really is. 18, he is the head of the body. He's the head of the body. Verse 20, and through him he's reconciled all things. This is who Christ really is. And then coming off this rich Christological section of chapter 1, chapter 2, Paul basically sums up what he's trying to tell the church in Colossae in verse 6. Look at it. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, he says, so walk in him. Walk in Christ. Walk in Christ. Remain loyal to Christ, believers. Continue believing the truth about Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, at the heart of what Paul is getting at, he, he, he's battling for their, their freedom. He, he's battling for their freedom in the book of Colossians. The church in Colossae had been freed by Christ, he said. He set you free from the domain of darkness. They had been freed from the bondage of sin, and they were being threatened. They were being threatened, their freedom. They were being tempted to slip back into slavery. And who was the culprit? What was it that was trying to take away their freedom in Christ? Well, look at verse eight of chapter two. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through what? Philosophy. Philosophy and empty 
deception. It was wisdom. It was Philo and Sophia, love of wisdom, philosophy that posed a threat on their freedom. It was worldly wisdom of the Gnostics, right, who raised their logic, raised their logic above the truth that tried to take away their freedom. It was worldly wisdom that tried to enslave these Colossian believers. Paul says, don't give in to it. See to it that they don't take you captive. He says, Christ is enough. Look at verse 9. He says, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells. In him, in verse 10, you've been made complete, he says. Verse 12, you've been buried with him. You've been buried with him. Verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and circumstances, he made you alive. Don't let, don't let a love of wisdom, don't let worldly knowledge take you captive again. Look at verse 14. He's canceled our certificate of debt consisting of degrees against, against us. Verse 15, when, when he, he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, do you know you were under the domain of Satan before you came to Christ, the domain of darkness? That he was your Lord? He had you captive? Paul says, listen, Christ has freed you from that captivity. Verse 16, he says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge. In other words, he's saying, don't go back into slavery. Let no one defraud you in verse 18. He says in verse 20, if you've, didn't, if you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why? Why are you submitting yourself again to such decrees? Don't eat, don't touch. Why are you going back into slavery? But what was the culprit? What was taking them and leading them back to slavery? It was wisdom, a wisdom devoid of God. Wisdom without God, ladies and gentlemen, enslaves. It enslaves. Wisdom without God enslaves people to false religion. It enslaves them to a false hope. It enslaves them to a false God. It enslaves them to a false sense of purpose. Wisdom without God enslaves you to your sin, and it keeps you there. Here it is. Laid bare from a scriptural standpoint. When you take out God from knowledge, it's satanic. It's satanic. It only produces evil. It rests in the power of men. It's foolishness, and it's enslaving. This is what the Bible says about that which our society has adopted from the ancient Greeks. It's not worth anything. Why do I give you this long introduction? Why do I give you this, this long introduction on the nature of worldly wisdom? Well, it's worldly wisdom that is the focus of Solomon's words as we close chapter one. Go over to Ecclesiastes as we close this wonderful chapter. Again, that was necessary. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, that is Solomon, we know that, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I set my mind to seek and to explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be affected with. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom. 
and to no madness and folly. And I realized that this also was striving after the wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and in much knowledge results in increasing pain. In verses 12 through 15, Solomon just basically gives us a reminder as to what he's doing in this book. If you look down at verse 13, he says, I set my mind to seek and to explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under the sun. I'm testing everything. I'm taking out God. I'm just looking from a purely secular standpoint at life to see if it has any meaning. And just in case we forgot what his results were, he tells us at the second half of verse 13, he said, I set my mind right to explore wisdom concerning all that has been done. If it had meaning, what does he say? It's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men. That is, it's evil. Look at verse 14. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun. I've seen it all. And behold, all is vanity. It's meaningless. It's striving after the wind. Why? Because what is crooked in verse 15 cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. We live in a sin-cursed world. And men are unable to fix the problem. This is Solomon's reminder as to what he's doing and to what his results were. What's meaning? What's the meaning of life when you take out God? It's vanity, he says. And last week in verses 3 through 11 of chapter 1, we proved that, right? It was a sort of general proof that Solomon gave us. The big picture. And he asked the question back in verse 3. He says, what advantage does man have in all that he does under the sun? Because if men truly have meaning, right, they're going to have something to show for it. Their life is going to show some profit, some value. But what was Solomon's answer to that question there in verse 3? Well, it was no. It was a resounding no. Men's life have no value. Why? Because they don't change anything, verse 4. Verse 8, because the eye is not satisfied, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Verse 9, because that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. Nothing's new. And then lastly, he said, there's no remembrance of it. He said, we don't change anything. We don't change anything. But coming off of that introductory proof, again, verses 3 through 11 is just an intro proof to this, that life is indeed meaningless. Solomon begins to turn to some specific things in life, some specific things in life. Again, in in verses 3 through 11, that was just big picture. Okay, big picture, here's why your life is meaningless as a whole. Because if you look at your life as a whole, you don't do anything. It's of no value. But then Solomon turns to specific things, and he turns first to wisdom, to wisdom. Verse 16, he said, I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, all other kings before me, which were David and Saul. He says, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. I was very, very knowledgeable. I sought out wisdom. Solomon was a wise man. We know this. We talked about this last week. According to 1 Kings 3, he asked for wisdom. God granted him wisdom. His wisdom was unprecedented. People came from all over the world, really, to see his wisdom. The Queen of Sheba came and said, anyone is blessed when they stand in the presence of Solomon's wisdom. But what is most interesting about Solomon's wisdom back in 1 Kings 3? I want you to hear me out on this. What's most interesting about his wisdom back there in 1 Kings 3, and as it relates to this text, I think the wisdom that Solomon is talking about here is very different from the wisdom that he received from God. It's different. Solomon in this text, 
in verse 16, he's talking about a wisdom that came not from God, but it was a worldly wisdom. Because if you remember back in 1 Kings 3, what was, why did God give him wisdom? To judge, right? To uphold the truth of God's law. But again, when we come to this text, and as Solomon looks at wisdom, he isn't looking at wisdom from that standpoint, to uphold God's law. He's looking at wisdom from a purely secular standpoint, a purely, purely secular standpoint. Again, under the heavens, under the sun, when you take out God, Solomon says, I pursued wisdom. I pursued wisdom. And as Solomon is considering, not the wisdom that he received in 1 Kings 3, again, because that wisdom was to honor God, but just purely worldly wisdom, as he, as he considers it, he gives us another characteristic to add to our list. Another characteristic. Again, what's our list? Well, worldly wisdom without God, according to James 3, is satanic. It only leads to unrighteousness. Worldly wisdom without God focuses on men, according to Paul. Worldly wisdom without God is foolishness. It's enslaving, according to Colossians chapter 2. But Solomon gives us one more characteristic of worldly wisdom. Verse 17, he said, And I set my mind to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. That is the opposite of wisdom. And I realized that this also is striving after the wind. Add one more thing to your list. Wisdom without God is meaningless. It's meaningless. It has no purpose. In verse 18, he says, because in much wisdom, there is much grief. And in much knowledge, it results in increasing pain. Solomon is saying that the more worldly wisdom that we gain and we take out God, the more you understand the meaningless of life. The more you understand the meaninglessness of life. This is what it is, ladies and gentlemen. This is knowledge without God when you lay it bare. But in closing, I want to ask a question. What is, what is wisdom with God? What's wisdom with God? I couldn't leave you on that note that worldly wisdom is meaningless, it's satanic, and the rest of the things that are on the list. I want to, I want to talk about what, what is wisdom with God. I want to be short in doing so. Go back to Proverbs chapter 1. Here's true wisdom. If you don't take anything away from the message, take away Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. This is real wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Knowledge. It is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Solomon gives us some wise words. Wise words. Wisdom apart from God is meaningless, and all those other things. But true wisdom, Solomon says, it's fearing the Lord. It's fearing God. If you want true knowledge, if you want true wisdom, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. And this is so funny as I thought about this because it just, we always find ourselves back to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Go there as we close. It's the last verse for tonight. Solomon tells us this here as well. We keep finding ourselves here. Again, wisdom without God is nothing. It's meaningless. But true wisdom is fear of the Lord. And Solomon tells us this at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. He tells us this. Again, this is called wisdom literature. And I believe that this is the case because of verse 13 of chapter 12. He says, the conclusion when all has been said, fear God, right? 
keep his commandments because this applies to every person. This applies to every person. This is true wisdom. This is wisdom that comes from above, to use James' terminology. Fearing God, living for God, fearing Christ, and that is to have an awe of him, to have a a reverential respect for him and to fall down on your knees and to worship him. This is true wisdom. What wisdom are you pursuing is the question I leave you. What wisdom are you pursuing? Are you pursuing the fear of the Lord, trying to keep his commandments? Because that's true wisdom. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for, for your word. Thank you so much for Ecclesiastes chapter one. It's been a rich, a rich study for us, Lord. It's affected my life. I know it's affected, affected so many other individuals' lives. Everyone here who's been here for this study. And Lord, again, as I said at the beginning, just in light of Solomon's conclusion as to what the meaning of life is without God, I'm so very thankful. We're so very thankful for Christ. We're so very thankful for the gospel, that we have meaning in the gospel, that we have meaning in Christ. Thank you so very much, Lord. And I want to pray for for anyone here, Lord, yeah, who who hasn't gotten serious with Christ, who's still trusting in the the knowledge of, of this world. Hopefully that's been exposed to what it really is according to the word of God. There's some people here, Lord, I would imagine in such a size of a group as this, some people who are truly seeking out meaning in riches, in work, in a man, in a woman. They're trying to find satisfaction there, Lord, and they're empty. They're empty. Lord, I pray for that individual. I pray that you would show them that in Christ they have significance, that in the Godhead they have significance, that they were created in his image and thus he owns their life and meaning is only found in the Godhead in living for Christ. Lord, I pray that you would show that. I trust that you have been showing that to people who have been coming, Lord. And again, Lord, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for meaning in Christ. We praise you, Lord, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.